not only do we have to train ourselves as teachers to ask these questions, but our students, some of them, if not all of them, have to learn how to answer them again because they've been so trained to just look for the multiple choice answer sometimes. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, I'm sure you are aware, and I believe our listeners are aware of our tagline, listen, speak, read, write, think. Aware? (laughs) I thought of it. It's true. It's very true. It's a little bold. Yes, it is. It is. But I know that at least the first four words of that come from this idea of there are actually only four language arts, which are? Listening, speaking, reading, writing. And we've talked about that. And, you know, we differentiate because the the academic world, when you say language arts, they think of this laundry list of curriculum that you have to force into kids, whereas we say arts of language just to shift the context there a little bit. Exactly, exactly. And so today we want to spend some time zooming in on the read part of our tagline. Great. So we have certainly had conversations about the importance of reading aloud to your children, Mm -hmm. even when they're no longer children. Mm -hmm. As they get older and teenagers, it's still a valuable thing to do. We've actually spent some time talking about learn-to-read strategies and phonics and our primary arts of language program that we have. But then there's this other part of reading that I wanted to spend some time talking with you about today, and that's this idea of reading great literature and having conversations about it. Right. And so when I pitched the idea to you, you said, I don't want to do it. No, you, what, you, I did not say that. No, it's not. It's I was thinking of who might be able to contribute more to the conversation than I could. That's true. That's exactly true. And so, and you had just gotten back from a conference in. Eugene, Oregon, the the Gutenberg. Classical education conference there. And you had sat in on a talk of a good friend of ours, a good friend of our company, Amanda Butler, who I just learned today has a new title. She is the vice president of training and support for classical conversations. So welcome, Amanda, to our podcast. Thanks, Julie. I'm excited to be here today. It was such a good talk. And I don't want you to re-give that talk. But I do want our listeners to know that if they ever have a chance to hear you teach, it would be worth making the effort to be there because you you engage that audience in a way that was as good or better than almost everyone I've ever heard. Oh, goodness, Andrew, you're making me blush and you can't even see it because it's a podcast. Well, that's <laughs> you can you can sit in your own home and your head can grow big because something I'm sure will come along to. You know, pop the bubble. It always does for all of us. But so this is this is wonderful because the whole idea of read to your kids out loud and talk about stuff and define stuff is really in that language building 
zone, you know, furnishing the mind, putting in the raw material of vocabulary, syntax, basic understanding. But there's a level of literature experience, and I, I wouldn't even say study because that conjures up, I don't know, comprehension curriculum or something, which to me is like yuck. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it has its place. But you you have experience, and I have a little bit, but but we have experience, and, and Julie does too, of spending time just reading great works together with basically teenagers and having discussions that are not scripted, that are not, you know, the comprehension question list, that aren't the, give me the Socratic manual for this particular book. So I was hoping you would just share some of your experiences, both the, the high points and maybe some of the frustrations and how you've got past them. Mm, wow. Okay. Andrew, that's a really big question. <laughs> we'll see if I can do just a little bit of that. I, like you said, I, I primarily work with students now who are 18, 19 years old, seniors in high school, and we read the ancient epics, and we also read the Old Testament. We read C.S. Lewis, and we read Western history from a, a more global perspective, not based in chronology. And so with, oh, and we study physics and throw in a little bit of trigonometry and some good math. <laughs> and, and with all of that, it just becomes this really beautiful fruit salad or buffet of ideas that we get to pick through all day long. And one of the things I, I think I've learned over the years is that students are more apt to share with you what they're thinking if you are gracious with their mistakes and their foibles and um, the silly things that they say. And a lot of times I'll just talk off the cuff too and be a little bit silly myself to kind of reduce the stress that can be in a classroom at any given time. And I think my, my number one tool is the five common topics of dialectic. So it's that it's back to that thinking mm -hmm. idea that you were talking about it a minute ago. And it, it feels good to think well. I, I think every human being wants to, inside themselves, be able to think well and to contribute to a conversation or be part of something. And one of the things that we can help our students do is be part of that larger conversation by training them as they're working through their school studies to think well and then to be able to communicate that. So, I, And I want you to unpack the common topics for us, but I, I want to mention that this kind of reminds me of something that John Taylor Gatto wrote about in his Underground History of American Education. Mm -hmm. And he tells the story of teaching eighth grade in Brooklyn, New York, and wanting to teach for various reasons he kind of explained. He wanted to teach the um, Moby Dick, the book Moby Dick mm -hmm. by Melville, which most people haven't read. Most people would die in the first chapter. But he wanted to teach this to these 13, 14-year-old kids. And so he ordered a set of books, a classroom set of books, and it came. And then he realized these books contained 
supposedly helpful, a chapter summary and a oh. list of questions <laughs> oh, no. that the teacher should ask and that would guide the discussion. And what he said in his description of this was that these questions preempted the opportunity for the students to have a personal relationship with the book. And I thought the way he said that was quite interesting because, yes, indeed, you can you can steer a conversation so radically that the students can kind of just disengage or they, or they default back to tell me the answer that you want me to give you. Mm-hmm. And, and so what Gatto said was he threw out that whole set of books and bought what he called an undoctored set with his own money so that each student could have a personal experience, a, a relationship with the author. And uh, so that just stuck in my mind forever. Like how do we avoid – making the thing a right answers, wrong answers game, which is what most students, you know, especially if they came out of a school or public school, that's what they're kind of used to. So how how do you how do you start your conversations and what are these common topics that are so useful as tools of thinking? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So I'll start I'll ask your last question. I'll answer your last question first. So the the five common topics are the five common, just like Boston Commons was a park that everybody in Boston used to graze their animals. It was a common space. So the common topics are available to all domains of knowledge. And then topics comes from the word topos. And topos is from the Greek, it means place. And so the five common topics are the five places that you can go common to all subject matter in the universe, I would argue, to think about something well, back to that idea of thinking. And so they they start off with, and you don't have to do them in this order that I'm sharing with you. You know that, Andrew. Uh, but for your for your listener's sake, the first one is definition. What what is this thing or what kind of thing is this? What are the parts of the thing? What groups does the thing belong to you? All of those kinds of questions. And so if we were reading, say, Julius Caesar, or even if we're reading the, well, and reading the Odyssey, you could choose a character like Odysseus or Julius Caesar or Brutus, and you could start going down those definition questions with with the students one day and just say, well, what what is Brutus? Well, he's a man. He's a husband. He's a this. He's a that. See where it goes. See where the the students, where their eyes light up. Or if they get bored with it and it gets exhausted really quickly, then I'll say, okay, well, then what is a man? Well, that's interesting conversation these days. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just real light or something like that. Or uh, so definition can be really fun because you can make it go really deep, really fast, or you can keep it really surfacey depending upon the age of the kiddos too. And you're just, you're just, it's like fishing. You're throwing the line out into the water to just see what hooks the student's interest because where their mind is already working is where it's easiest for you to start developing it and making it work more or harder 
or something like that. So to me, the common topics are all about making my job easy and making the students work hard because it's their brains. And definitions are so important. I know you've had experience teaching kids uh, debate, right? And that's the first thing that you have to show everyone is your definition of the terms in the resolution or whatnot. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard said is he who controls the definition yes. controls the debate. Yep. So starting there is so wise. And you could end up on any number of rabbit trails, as you mentioned. What is man? That's that's a wild one. And so at some point, you kind of exhaust at least that level, that layer of definition, and then you can go where? Yeah. So sometimes you can go, so in the next common topic, but again, you don't have to do them in these order, this order, but the next one you could go to would be comparison. And you want to think about whatever the thing you defined, you could start there and then choose something either inside the piece of literature or maybe it's a piece of literature that you just finished before, or it's something that you read a year before, or I've done this, believe it or not, I have looked out the window and I've just picked a noun of something that I saw out the window. And I said, okay, let's compare Achilles to a tree. And it it can be really fun. The first few times you do something that wild, you have to offer a lot of ideas yourself to kind of train them to see how those things might have anything in common at all. But uh, because we live in a universe, you need one verse, one word. Um, Everything's related to everything somehow. And so the categories that we like to compare are the categories of are, what are the things, uh, what do the two things have, and what do the two things do. And I guide my students to think about the similarities always, always, always first. Always think about similarities first. And then to take each of those similarities and think about how that similarity looks different between the two items that you're comparing. And that's not natural to do because every time we go to the mall or the grocery store or we're driving down the road, What we pick up on first, I I think this is true for all mankind, differences. How is this Mm -hmm. thing different from this over here? How are these two things different? How am I different, either for better or for worse? That comparison always wants to break things apart. And so one of the things that I want to do with with my students and my own children, we homeschool, is to, to draw their eye, to think about how things are the same, how we're all united before training myself to think about how we're apart. Because I think if we could just think more together, it would, it would be helpful. That is so, I was just saying that is so, so relevant to the world today because it seems as though in anything that is even slightly controversial, uh, there's people just trying to drive wedges by pointing out these extreme differences where and we're not starting with the conversation. What do these two political groups or theologies or lifestyles, what do they actually have in common? What can we work on together? And the similarities. The uh, I think we have a mutual friend who said 
anything can be compared to anything. And I remember the first time I tried this, I was uh, teaching a, a high school class and I, I held up a dry erase marker and I said, okay, dry erase marker and a cloud, right? <laughs> the, what, what are some similarities between these things? And I was operating totally on faith that anything could be compared to anything. And of course, what I have found, I'm sure you have many times, is you know, a, a room full of teenagers have huge advantages over me, myself, and I because, first of all, there's more of them. Second of all, they're, they're not limited as much by the rules of logic that we seem to accumulate that can be limiting in our imaginations. So uh, that's wonderful. And, and so starting with similarities and then looking at differences – and what are, what does comparison then lead to? Well, it it can lead, I think, to a lot of different places. Sometimes I leave comparison actually to last because we've thought about things so thoroughly with the other topics that that comparison almost becomes the summary of the conversation. And other times, just like you said, it could lead to something like circumstance, which is our next common topic that we can use. The common topic of circumstance is the question, so what's happening here right now? And then thinking about, so what's happening somewhere close by at the same time? And then what's happening at the same time somewhere a little further away, a little further away, and a little further away? And what I, what I enjoy, oh, and there's two more questions that I like to use, especially with the older kids. I don't use these two questions with the younger ones because I don't think they've got enough um, background and experience to be able to enjoy pondering these two questions. But the 18 and 19 year olds really like them is this idea of what's possible and what's probable as well. So all of that is part of circumstance. And so thinking about uh, maybe something like Jane Eyre and while while she has has left her home and has crawled through the snow, what's happening back at the mansion at that same time? Mm. And then so speculation to some degree about what's going on that isn't clearly elaborated by the author or the source. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. that, that lends to some imagination. It, it lends sometimes to, no, that's not what's happening at all. That can't be happening because the book says, da -da 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 -da. oh, okay, well, why do you say that? Or, well, what else could be happening? Those sorts of things. And that really gets the juices flowing with their imagination sometimes. And, and like I said, that also blends really well into what is possible for this or what, what could most likely be happening at this time? And of course, those two questions, there's lots of argument space to argue there or to think and test hypotheses. And so you're, you're always pointing people back to the text to support or refute a, a claim or a thought based on the text? Uh, generally, generally when it's, when it's possible, that's, that's the idea. Um, Sometimes when, of course, again, these are big kids who have jobs and are filling out college applications, so they don't always have everything read before they'll come to seminar. And so <laughs> <laughs> real life, right? Um, so we'll read a passage together out loud so that we all have a common place to start 
again, and then we'll branch off from there. And so when we when we have a day in seminar like that, then it's it's less easy to ask them to go back to the text because they may not have anything else other than what we just read aloud. So, uh, you know, it's a lot of discussion. And I'm sure, Andrew, you've probably got a thousand stories about this. I think a lot about discussions is just holding your hands open and allowing the the group of human beings that you are with at that moment to kind of figure out where you're all going together at at one time. So I've I've kind of given up predetermining exactly what our theme or our thesis is going to be at the end of any given um, class time because I I don't know. It's it's not up to me. Yeah, you you may or may not get there and it may or may not even be a good thing to right. get there. Right. But all right, we've got definition, comparison, circumstance. Yes. What's going on nearby or at a further location or in the same situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's two more. There are. So I'll try to cover those quickly and then I I bet you'll have an awesome story. The relationship is the next one and relationship is the idea of so we're at a point in the story or in the history or you know this also works with physics or science really well. Or math, actually, we've used relationship in talking about math too. So you get to a certain point in a process or in a storyline and you can stop everything and say, okay, so what happened right before this? And is that a cause of what we just heard or read or did? Or is that just something that that happened to happen at the same time? Because there's a difference between something being a cause and something just being on the the timeline of of something something else that happened. And so with relationship you can work your way back by asking so what happened before that? What happened before that? What happened before that? Or you can ask the question so why did that happen? Why did that happen and why did that happen and that'll drive them faster to this cause and effect idea. And then of course you can if you're reading a piece of literature and you already know what has happened, you're reviewing something, then you can ask, so what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? Or what causes, what is the effect next, next, next? So you're building the timeline. Most of your students have a pretty good foundation with a couple of years of logic, I would mm-hmm. assume. So they can almost police each other in a way on is their observation consistent with their understanding of logic. And, you know, I often think in today's world, there's so many people who will get all up in arms about two things that are happening and assume that they are causally related. Right. When just a a basic peripheral knowledge of logic and observational skills would show that, no, you know, those two things are not causally. But that, that opens up a a whole dangerous line of thinking about something to make errors in that way. So, you know, I've, I've always thought one of the greatest things about literature is you get to practice thinking about life without having to make decisions about life yet. 
<laughs> well, and, and, and right along with that is that you get to talk about decisions that other people have made that are not close enough to hurt your own heart or your own ego or your own psyche. You're, it's, it's distanced in a way that you can evaluate that without it being too painful as well. And, you, and what they're doing is in they're practicing the thing, they're practicing thinking logically, they're practicing thinking this way, so that then when it is time for them to be introspective and look in the mirror and say, oh, wow, yeah, I'm wrong. That was that was poor thinking. They have the tools to do that. And because they've been practicing for so long. But so then the last of the common topics is the common topic of testimony. And that's the idea of interrogating or asking good questions of eyewitnesses who were there, who actually saw what happened, and of talking to experts or authorities. And an authority could be a book, an authority could be clergy, an authority could be a book of law. So authority doesn't have to be a human person sitting in front of you. It could be the axioms of Euclid's geometry. Um, depending upon what you were talking about there. And then really interrogating or thinking through those eyewitnesses and what did they really see, which is just reiterating using all the common topics that we've just talked about again. And, and part of that with testimony is having good judgment as to the qualifications of right. the authority or the ex. I, I always laugh when you get these celebrities. <laughs> who then want to mouth off their opinion about politics or economics, and they they don't appear to have much grounding in terms of knowledge or fact base or even time spent contemplating. And, and then you're like, well, why should we even listen to Cardi B or whoever – and that opinion she has about this problem in the world. Okay, well, maybe she does have something, some reason that we would listen to her. But but that has to be established. It can't be assumed. And I think too many young people today are very, you know, enamored with fame and mm. wealth. Mm. So if someone is famous or wealthy, they must be smart and they must have a valid opinion. And, it, I mean, you're so easily manipulated if you don't have processes to think clearly about that stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, if, if we're working through the common topics and we're having open and honest conversation about these things, that it, it really can lend to building humility, not just in each student or, or not. At first, I think humility comes to the class or to the group of people, because you learn to listen to one another. But then mm. also personal humility as your own thinking gets gets assessed by your fellow human beings in seminar with you. And, and you realize, oh, I was thinking poorly about that, or I was being unreasonable about this. And, and hopefully over time, if we practice this for six or eight or I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but for more, <laughs> more than 10 years, um, you can you can have that gift of humility to not be enamored maybe with fame or not be enamored so much with yourself or or anybody else. There's a, 
I don't know where it originally came from, but an expression sometimes pops out in conversation, you'll say, or I've said, come, let us reason together. And, you know, that attitude of let's pursue truth together using our intellects. I I often daydream, like, if if there was a really great leader, what would happen if that leader were able to take time with his, you know, cabinet or whatever you want to call it, and they just did some distinctly human things, like sang a song together, mm. or read a poem together, or read a story, you know, Job or the story from the Odyssey or something, and just spent maybe half an hour talking together. And then when they had to move in to hard subjects, they'd be tuned to that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure I could convince some future president to have his cabinet sing songs <laughs> for 15 minutes at the beginning of a meeting. But, you know, there's that element of connecting with – and it goes back to our idea of comparison. How are what, – what is our shared mm-hmm. identity? Yeah. You know, Andrew, maybe you've got a future president listening to this podcast right now. Mm-hmm. I, I have hope. I have hope. <laughs> we have to have hope. I, I heard a very interesting talk on hope uh, not long ago because just by my nature, it's something I tend to be short on. So it was a theology guy and he was saying hope, in order for it to be hope, has to be difficult but not impossible. Mm-hmm. If your if your goal, your objective, your desire is not difficult, well, you don't need hope. There's mm-hmm. no virtue in that. There's no dependence on God and other people. You know, hope is dependent by nature, but it has to be possible, and so it has to be hard but possible. I hope I can do this thing. I hope we together can accomplish this. So, yes, I hope that. You and people like me and all of us in this country and around the world will see good thinking 10 years down the line when our students are all grown up taking positions of greater responsibility. Well, and just for those listening that have, that have said, oh, I, I don't have hope because this feels way too hard. What mm-hmm. what we've already talked about is a lot of words and a lot of questions, and I can't keep that in order my my offering to them would be that it it is hard to retrain yourself to not blather at your students all the things you think are really cool about a book and instead to back up and ask questions and if that first baby step could be that you just take each of the topics and write them on a piece of paper and choose a a short passage from whatever book it is that you're reading with your students right now and write out one single definition question, one single comparison, one circumstance, one relationship, and one testimony question. So you've got five questions on your piece of paper and just use those and see how it goes. And then the next time, write five different questions with a different passage and shake up the order a little bit. And if it flops the first time, you still have hope because it was hard. It's it's a hard thing. Um, 
but it'll work just a little bit. And the next time that you try, it'll work just a little bit better because not only do we have to train ourselves as teachers to ask these questions, but our students, some of them, if not all of them, have to learn how to answer them again because yeah. they've been so trained to just look for the multiple choice answer sometimes. Well, and, and even going one step past that is them learning to ask the good questions. I oh, It reminds yeah. me of a first time I was trying to teach through some classic literature with a group of teenagers. This was a very long time ago. And I would prepare and I would get this great list of questions and I would get the kids and I would, you know, okay, you were supposed to read these chapters. And I would just ask them questions and they would give me very short answers. And this went on for weeks and I'm exhausted and I'm not even happy. <laughs> and and then I realized my problem is they're totally dependent yes. on me to ask the question. So mm -hmm. I said, okay, we got to flip the, flip the thing here. Mm -hmm. And so – I told them one week, I said, next week, okay, you all have to ask the questions. So think of some questions you can ask. I didn't have access to anything like, you know, the common topics or anything. It was before I got into that world. And and so I said, your homework is to make a list of questions. Well, they didn't because they hadn't, you know, they hadn't had any experience with that. So they come in and I said, okay, who's got a question? Nobody, right? And so I said, well... We'll just sit here until someone thinks of a good question. Oh, I tell you, that was the longest, however, three, four minutes. And they just look at me like, come on now, teacher. You're mm -hmm. supposed to be mm -hmm. the conductor here. And I said, I, I said, I'm, I'm not going to ask any questions of you. you. Someone else has to start this conversation. That was a tremendous pivot point for me. Mm. So what what we've been talking about these last, you know, 20 minutes or so on these asking questions and I loved how you I love how you turn this Andrew to having the kids ask the questions and to hopefully get to that and to wait for them. These are all active learning strategies and we know that when students who are actively engaged in their own learning those are the students that are going to be successful. Those yeah. are the ones that are ultimately going to walk out of that classroom feeling, you know, pumped and energized and hopeful that they're they're looking forward to their next class. Well, and it, it it's so useful as an mm -hmm. adult. Think about when we interview people, sure, you know, to to work with us. Mm -hmm. If that candidate had in their mind and in their experience these common topic question categories. They would ask some really good questions. Mm -hmm. They would learn more about mm -hmm. what we do, and we would learn a lot more about how they think. Oh, P.S. to any teens who are listening to this podcast, when you are being interviewed for a job, always, always, always be prepared to ask at least two really good questions. Yeah. And now you got them. Yeah. The interview needs to go both ways. It Otherwise, does. It's, it's a dead thing. Yeah. Well, Amanda, I am sure we could talk about this for hours. Any like last thoughts or I, I think some people at this point would say, I love those five words. I really don't know what they mean. Is there something you would refer people to in terms of how to learn and contemplate and start practicing using the common topic questions? Yes. As a matter of fact, Lee Bortons has a book or a series of books. It's three of them called The Core, The Question, and The Conversation. And what we've been talking about today is covered in the question at length, um, applied to many different 
realms of human knowledge. And so that would be a very accessible way to get started with some more information about this. Super. And we'll be sure and put a link in our show notes to that series of books and specifically the question. And and we'll finish up as, as so many great writers and thinkers have articulated in one form or another, common sense is most uncommon. Yes. These yes. common topics today, unfortunately, are uncommon, but to the degree that we can give these tools to our students, every little bit will help. Mm. And ourselves too, Andrew. May we all become better thinkers, even as we're teaching our students. Amanda, it's a joy to have you as not just a guest on our podcast, but truly a friend of friend to IEW, to Andrew, and to me personally. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure that our listeners will all be better. We're going to do this again. With we should. Her because there's so much more so to So much more here. we could talk about, Amanda. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate you. I love the time. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Andrew. God bless. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.